Hi, I'm Emily Salaby, founder of Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company, and your host on the Hazard Girls podcast here on Jacket Media. I'm so honored to host this show where I get to chat with Hazard Girls about their careers. Hazard Girls is an online community for women working in traditionally male-dominated fields. On our show, you'll get to hear from these amazing women about the path that led them to their current careers, challenges they've overcome, advice for other women in entering these industries, and more. Remy Drabkin is a pioneering winemaker, innovating her industry as a top producer of non-traditional grape varieties. Remy grew up surrounded by a nascent Oregon wine industry in Yamhill County. She was inspired from an early age to carry forward the innovative spirit of Oregon's pioneer winemakers. Remy is the owner of the renowned Remy Wines and Three Wives Wines and the newly released Blackheart by Remy. Hey, Remy. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? Uh, I'm fantastic. It's a nice Sunny, 81-degree day. I'm staring out at the vineyard. Grapes are just starting to turn color. I had a delicious salami sandwich for lunch from Red Hills Market. So life is good. I forgot to tell you before we started that you're being interviewed today by someone who does not know a whole lot about wines, but I do love wine. That's okay. I'll tell you the key to great winemaking is good shoes. (laughs) Ah, (laughs) yes. Good to know. (laughs) I can't wait for you to try out the Juno Jones shoes. That'll be, I cannot wait to see you. And then actually, that'll be fun. I'm looking forward to it myself. Well, ask me anything you want to. I'll tell you everything I don't know. Sure. (laughs) Well, why don't we start out by you telling us, you know, a little bit about Remy Wines and Three Wives Wines and Blackheart by Remy. Those names are so enticing. I want to hear a little bit more. Happily. So I've wanted to be a winemaker since I was a little girl. Literally, since I was about eight years old, I started telling people I was going to be a winemaker. And I designed my first label when I was in fifth grade and uh, chose to name my then fanciful winery Remy Wines. And seemed like a good name. So I, I just went with it. <laughs> I get asked a lot if it's my full name and it is. I was named for my great grandfather who immigrated to the U.S. in the late 1920s and was an important fixture in the life of my mother. So that, hence uh, that name got handed down to me. Did you know your grandfather? No, I was named for my great grandfather, but I didn't. Both of my grandfathers passed away long before I was born. So, no, I I didn't know either of them. I did have a very close relationship with my grandmother, Germaine Gabrielle, who I've named our rose for. Oh, what a beautiful tribute. Yeah. in, In fact, within the Three Wives Wines, I try to pay homage to a number of people in my family. So, our Pinot Gris is called Fisherman's Pinot Gris, spelled with an S C H. My mother's maiden name is Fisher. Our Pinot Noir is called Jules, which is my father's first name. So I do find ways to recognize and honor family members through the labeling. But for the Remy Wines label, I had a clear idea of what I wanted to make, which was Italian varietals grown in the Pacific Northwest. 
I wanted to do very traditional or old world winemaking with long barrel aging, minimal intervention, really making the wines by hand. And so I named that kind of main, you know, the company after myself. So and the Three Wives was kind of a fun family story. I actually spent about a year making a movie that tells the story of the Three Wives, but it was a case of mistaken identity and it was just a fun, playful name. And the idea behind my Three Wives brand is that, that it's a place for me to express my creativity and playfulness in a different way. So I don't hold myself to any set of rules. I don't necessarily make the same varietals under that label every year. I always make a red blend. I always make a white wine and I always make our Pinot Noir under that label. But sometimes I'll also make Oxerwa or Chardonnay or Tempranillo or Cabernet Sauvignon or whatever I feel like making that year because that's the idea is that it is a playground for me. I'm kind of intrigued about this story. Can you tell us a little bit about the story behind the name? Yeah, so my dad started going to Alaska to go fishing when my older brother was a really young boy, about six or seven, and he took him for about 10 years. And then my older brother didn't want to go fishing any longer. So my dad started Mm -hmm. taking me when I was about six years old. And I went with my dad for about 10 years fishing in Southeast Alaska. And then I foolishly decided I didn't want to go. That was for a short period of time. I ended up going back as frequently as possible. But when I decided not to go. My dad invited my mom on the trip and she essentially said, my understanding is that you want me to go to a place with no electricity, no running water. We have to pack in everything. There's no indoor plumbing. And this is, you know, we're in the, we have to hike in, take a boat and then hike. And this is a vacation that you want me to go on. And my dad said, yes, but On the flip side, you'll have fresh salmon, fresh halibut, fresh crab, fresh shrimp every day. So there's a reward. And my mom said, well, let me invite some girlfriends and pack some champagne and I'll go. (laughs) So that's what she did. And so then they all show up in this very small town in Southeast Alaska. And my dad's now been going to the same town for over 20 years. So he generally knows folks. Folks generally know him. And... He just goes about business as usual, gets the boat in the water, gases up at the boat dock, everybody gets fishing licenses, some groceries, they meet on the dock, and then they go out to this cabin. And again, it was kind of generally known that he had a one-room cabin out on this remote island. So it's about a week later, and there's a fishing boat on the water, a tour boat, like a fishing guide boat. And the water's really calm on this particular day, so they can hear everything that the fishing guide is saying. Uh-huh. He's mostly talking about how to cut your bait and those sorts of things. And all of a sudden he says, look over there. That's the guy. That's the guy I've been telling you about. That's the guy with the three wives. So... <laughs> It was a good, funny family story. Yeah. And I just pulled it right over to uh, be a part of kind of this story, which is, while it's very much my story, it's also a, a family story. The 
tasting room is located on a piece of property that my parents purchased in the mid nineties. It was in foreclosure. It was essentially 30 acres of blackberries. And about three years after I started the winery, I started pushing up into those blackberries and we've slowly been reclaiming it and now have seven planted acres here, mostly to Pinot Noir and Le Grine. And then the Blackheart story. Those a long way to get to telling you about my three brands. So Blackheart is a new, a new release for us. Actually, we intended to release it in early June. The label is a kind of stark white label with a large black heart in the center of it. And mm-hmm. I held back on releasing it because the symbolism of that black heart from the time that I conceived of using it as a label and was using it for my own storytelling and its importance and the symbolism within Black Lives Matter was I just didn't want to rush that label out without taking a moment to pause and reflect on the fact that regardless of what it meant to me, it was a powerful symbol and that we needed to stop and think about how we were going to thoughtfully release it and not be um, co-opting anybody else's symbolism. You know, as a white Jewish lesbian, I was certainly not uh, looking to co-opt any part of Black Lives Matter movement. So for me, that was a story about the label represents surviving tragedy and loss, but in that still finding ways to celebrate and finding joy and love and beauty. And I think in that way, there's a lot of crossover with that storytelling. So we did pause on the release of the Blackheart, which is a traditional Method Champenoise sparkling wine made entirely of Pinot Noir from my vineyard here that I'm perched next to right now. So we paused and now we're focusing on the storytelling for the release in less than a month. And we're making a video that tells the kind of tells that story through imagery. We've also decided to donate 5% of all the sales of that wine to the ACLU. And I'm really excited for the release. It's a beautiful, beautiful wine. Both the aesthetics of the label, but the wine itself are really gorgeous. Who did the art for the wine label? I conceptualize all of it. And then I work with a wonderful graphic artist and her firm here in McMinnville, Oregon, little McMinnville, Oregon. We have what I consider a a world-class graphic art studio. So Nectar Graphic. Mm -hmm. It's your vision. It's my my vision. Yeah, it was was very, very specific what Mm -hmm. I wanted the label to look like. And that's so interesting that each of your brands has such a well thought out and intricate story. Is that part of the tradition of winemaking or is that something more unique to you? I think there are people that have incorporated storytelling into their labels, but I wouldn't say it's the norm or there might be personal touches, but it's, I mean, my labels are very, very personal and I don't believe that's the norm. I think that that's something that's kind of unique. I mean, certainly we don't all try to wear our heart on our sleeve or in this case, put our heart on our labels, but um, I quite literally have. Yeah. What has your experience been like, you know, as a woman in the industry and as an out gay woman in the industry, have you had any special challenges um, that you've faced and how have you dealt with them? Yes. I mean, those are two different questions. I think, you know, we know from, you know, just being women in the world that we face the same challenges in the wine industry you do in any any industry, you know, 
lower rates of pay, harder to come by opportunities. Specifically, uh, I mean, you know, I've been working in wine long enough that I've had so many experiences with you know, just not getting assistance from sales reps when I was going to replace equipment that's, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. And I just could not get a time and day from a sales rep at a trade show or regularly, you know, if I'm there with a male employee, you know, all the conversation, of course, is directed to him, regardless of the fact of who writes the checks and is actually making the final decision to, I mean, I went to load a truck one time and I showed up on the forklift and the truck driver literally turned to me and said, where's the man? You're (laughs) kidding. I'm right here. Wow. (laughs) You don't have to laugh, but I laugh now because, you know, these are the kinds of things. I mean, we all face these things regularly. I think as a gay woman, you know, I was really scared to be out for a long time even though I'd been out for a long time, I've been out since I was about 16 years old, but I was so regularly, I mean, people regularly asked me, you know, oh, does your husband make the wines? Or are you the daughter of the, you know, does your dad make the wines? Or those types of things. And I just was very regularly encountered with scenarios where I was fearful that by outing myself, it would have a negative effect on business. I gave up on that, thankfully, a number of years ago. Um, and in fact, just hosted the first ever Wine Country Pride. And just so you know, this is the first Pride celebration here in 2020. This is the first Pride celebration in my entire county. So we did a huge COVID safe vehicle Pride parade with a limited number of people on site. And then we sent out Vimeo links and we broadcast the whole thing. We had a drag show. It was great. It was a wonderful community celebration. We were very, very, very specific to being, you know, having people have their own designated areas and being able to keep everybody, my employees and all of our guests, not just feeling safe, but actually being safe. And then as a follow-up to that, other than live streaming it, we also sent out links to our entire mailing list. We sent out Vimeo links to both the Pride Parade and then the program, which was the, you know, drag show and a few speakers. And I had a longtime customer who had been a wine club member and was a very large buyer write back and say... I don't like parades and parties and you pushing your agenda on me. And I have to tell you, it floored me. I mean, I just, the concept of there being a gay agenda, I felt like that died sometime in the nineties. And it was just, it totally shocked me to think that people are still attached to that idea that there's a a gay agenda. Yeah. That's hurtful too. From a long time customer. How did you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, unfortunately, we when we've been exposed to repeated discrimination, sometimes that's not the first thing that comes to us, right? Like my first, my gut reaction wasn't to be hurt by it. I was definitely more angry than I was hurt. But, you know, responsibly, what we did was, first of all, I left the person anonymous, but I posted their exact remarks on social media, because I think it's important that, especially as we call out into our echo chambers so much right now, that, you know, we share these stories that this is happening. I've had repeated instances of discrimination within the last couple months, outward discrimination, like I haven't felt in years, 
when restaurants and bars were first reopening, I tried to go out. I was wearing a really nice suit and this random guy in this bar started yelling that at me. And I mean, to the point that I like, I was so uncomfortable that I, you know, I left. And as I left, I said, he said, oh, are you leaving already? And I said, yeah, you, you know, you ruined my experience. And he said, oh, I'm so sorry. And the guy he was sitting with said, I'm not. So it's shocking how, you know, it's the, the prejudice is like seething out from whatever rocks it's been shoved under. Anyways, in response to the, you know, losing a long time big customer for promoting my gay agenda, I made t-shirts that say gay for Remy. <laughs> I saw those. I was going to ask you about those. Okay, tell us about that. Yeah. It was a longtime joke between a close friend and I about, you know, uh, basically women feeling safe to kind of explore their flirtation with me because I seemed like a, a safe person to do that with. And so that we had this joke about straight women that would flirt with me regularly. <laughs> and so we had joked that for my 40th birthday, which is very, very far away, <laughs> we would make gay for Remy t-shirts and I would get as many women in my small town wearing them as possible. And, and <laughs> so it was just like a fun, you know, a fun joke, but when this person actually accused me of having a gay agenda, you know, it's a joke, but at the same time, it's not. It's like, okay, you think there's really a gay agenda? Like how much fun can we make of the concept of there being right. a gay agenda? So yesterday I ran into three women wearing gay for Remy t-shirts. One of them was my mother. <laughs> One of them was what? My mother. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> Which that was the only time I was like, um, uh, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> maybe the joke went too far. <laughs> but, you know, I think to find creative ways to speak up and speak out, it doesn't, you don't always have to respond with, you don't always have to try to make people understand. I didn't need to make that customer understand that by having a pride parade, I wasn't pushing some sort of gay agenda, what I needed my community to understand was that I was discriminated against and a way that they could show their support and solidarity was by basically, you know, laughing at or mocking the concept, this very prejudiced, antiquated concept of there being a gay agenda. Yeah, I saw those. I thought they were really cool. So going back to, you know, just the idea of, and you can speak to, you know, being a gay woman in the field or just, you know, young people getting into the wine field in general. Do you have any advice for people who maybe grew up completely outside of that industry and are just interested in getting involved in it? Like what would be their first step? So I would say the wine industry is very much a lifestyle industry, meaning that this is not an industry to go into if your goal is to be rich and lay by a pool. <laughs> like This is an industry to go into if you like to work hard, but you also enjoy food, wine, people. It's a very social industry. So it's a very rewarding industry in that way in which there's great community and there's great opportunities. And then, of course, 
you know, our events and our collaborations, they're all about food and wine. So you end up getting to live this very rich lifestyle in a sense, in that you have this opportunity of exposure to great food, great wine, and then subsequently really compelling community. So I'd say that that's the first thing to evaluate, like, what are your goals? Uh, You know, there's a old joke about the wine industry, which is, you know, how to make a small fortune in the wine industry is you start with a large one. So if that's your motivation, don't go wine. Otherwise, you know, really ground up. The first thing to do is start applying for harvest internships, regardless of what your experience is. We value those who have had the experience of harvest because it is very hard work and also very rewarding work. I'd say that's the best place to start, whether or not your interest is in marketing or, you know, sales and marketing or management or production, because you have to understand how the product is made in order, and you have to really appreciate the labor and the effort that goes in, in order to effectively do any of the other jobs within the wine industry. So apply for either a harvest position or get on a picking crew and start there. Everybody start there. Okay. Yeah, that's good advice. So your business model is, it seems like it's threefold. People can order from you directly. They can go to your vineyard or you have a membership service. Is that correct? Yes. So we are fairly small. So we try to have most of our product, most of our wines go directly from us to you. So we have a tasting room that is located in Oregon, in the Willamette Valley, and we're here seven days a week. So people can come to tastings and pick up bottles or cases and take them home. Of course, we have a online store as well at remywines.com. And then we have a wine club called Bellamici, and that's kind of a subscription service. And it's twice a year and it comes with, you know, preferred pricing and first access to new releases. And some of our releases are very small, 50 cases or so. And so, you know, our club members like to have the option to get those wines before they sell out because some of them sell out very quickly. And our wine club can also be joined through our website or by calling the tasting room. And what's the website? remywines.com r-e-m-y-w-i-n-e-s.com well before we go for our audience listeners who are just curious about you know what it's like to own a vineyard what it's like to work in the wine industry it seems very glamorous but maybe it is and maybe there are other aspects of it can you tell us a little bit just about a day in the life of someone working in your industry at your level and maybe at other levels as well Yeah, absolutely. I start my day at 4.30 in the morning and my day is somewhat dictated by the season, of course. So during harvest, that means the first thing I do is get to the winery as quickly as possible so I can monitor all of our ferments and lay out the work for crews that are coming in. But today on a not harvest day, it meant that I Still started my day at 4.30, checked my emails, walked my dog, went to the winery, made sure everybody was up and running there, and then came out to the vineyard to monitor what's happening here. And then because of COVID, we're still 
open seven days a week, but I only am staffing the tasting room four days a week. So we kept everybody employed, but the service demands with having all of our tastings happening outside are much greater. So we needed more staff on the days that we were technically open. So three days a week now, I'm here during our open hours for walk-in traffic, but we don't take reservations during that time. That'll adjust once harvest starts. My days are fairly diverse. I also historically cook a lot for our customers. And so my life is a switch back and forth between producing wine and throwing great parties and events for people to come and enjoy wine. Yeah. Our cellar crew has a, you know, my cellar master of one person that's full-time in the cellar. You know, he starts most of the year, he starts at 8.30 and he's done at 4.30 during harvest. You know, it's not unusual for us to work 16 to 20 hour days. And then my tasting room team, my sales team is really focused on creating great customer service experiences. And, you know, so they come in an hour before opening and host guests throughout the day. And then if we have an event, stay on. And there have been many times when we've hosted such good parties that it means our whole crew is here until late, late, late at night or early uh-huh. in the morning. <laughs> We have a good, strong team. So there's a lot of variability, but it is a lot of work. I work a lot, but yeah. I like what I do. So I don't mind, but I do work a lot. <laughs> definitely not a yeah. desk job. <laughs> it is definitely not a desk job, which is good. I'm not very good at sitting still. Yeah. Well, Remy, thank you. This has been so cool. Thanks for sharing your journey with us. And after we're done, I need to get some personal recommendations from you so I can place my order. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thank you. You have been listening to the Hazard Girls podcast on Jacket Media, sponsored by Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company. That's junojonesshoes.com. And you can go there to learn about our steel toe boots and to join the Hazard Girls community. I'm your host, Emily Salaby. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.